0: Today we've got our first Russian guest on the true crime podcast and I don't usually write down a list of things that the guest has done because usually I can just shoot off the top and say basically here's this guy's story but Nico has been to Mexico and he's kicked it with El Chapo's brother and cousin and stayed at El Chapo's house. Nico has been to the Philippines where he met a death squad executioner. As well as his stories of the Russian mob, we've also got he went to Colombia, visited the coca production out there, and also visited a rebel camp. And if that isn't enough, we've got, in Japan, he met the Yakuza, which is the Japanese Mafia. And there's still loads more items on this list that I'm going to let Nico himself tell us about. Nico I started reading his book, Dope World, and he writes in a really warm voice, takes the piss out of himself constantly so which makes it compulsively readable as well as the fact that I'm obsessed with the war on drugs and anything drug related and a lot of my followers are as well so this book is available worldwide on Amazon in the description box below this video are links to all of Nico's socials and links to Amazon to his uh, book I also saw that you got a little YouTube channel Don't know whether you wanted people to click over to that. Now, Nico has also done some time in prison. And that was a two and a half year sentence for supply. Started out in HMP Thameside, which is in London. Actually did a talk there. Then was moved over to another prison, ISIS, which wasn't quite as nice. So ISIS is always a bad sign. The sheer scope and magnitude of what we're dealing with today—I'm not quite sure where to start. You—I want to just thank you for coming on, for starters. And thanks for the opportunity. And who, who have we got on the T-shirt? That's um, that's Dostoevsky.
1: That's the uh, the author of *Crime and So You got the, the two axes here. Actually, I actually wasn't that much. I read that in prison, Crime and Punishment. I had my dad send it to me, but I wasn't that much of a big fan. I know maybe it was just like it was an English version and it was a translation, but it was still like in old English. So it kind of sounded like Stewie from Family Guy. It's like, <laughs> what the deuce? What the deuce? So I didn't fully get into it, but you know. Um...
0: I did prefer Tolstoy to Dostoevsky. did read Crime and yeah. Punishment in Prison and Anna Kaye thought Anna Kay was quite boring, but I did like Crime and Punishment, mm-hmm. and I liked Ostrovsky's story of where he was almost sentenced to death, almost executed, and then he was reprieved as well. Yeah. So let's go back then to you know you were born in Leningrad.
1: Yeah, as we called it in the good old days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then what brought you to London? Um, it's kind of uh, it's kind
1: of had a long journey. So it's born in in Great Soviet Union. When that was around, um, and our family moved to Italy, I think, quickly, and then where I just got really fat. And then, so what year did you move to Italy? Well, it was like '92,
0: I think. Okay, so after the fall,
1: yeah, yeah, I didn't remember anything about it though, because I was like this size, I was just shitting all over the house. (laughs) But, um, then after that, we moved to America, and I learned English in America. Uh, And then I think 95, around 96, finally ended up in
0: the UK. You learned English watching Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtles. Yeah, and and Batman, the (laughs) animated series. (laughs) I'm a huge Batman fan. Love the Joker. So, America. Yeah. And then how old are you when you get over to here?
1: About six or seven, I think. Okay. So... I was speaking English with an American accent, but I had a Russian name, and I just never fit in. Right, I was always the outside. Actually, that's quite interesting because, like now, if I go back to Russia, I speak English. I speak Russian with an English accent, but <laughs> there is not really such a thing as an English accent in Russian. So people like assume I'm Polish or Israeli or something. Yeah,
0: you do have a very just belong unique. nowhere. You have a unique accent, definitely. <laughs> So generic foreign. So you're in London as a kid.
1: Are you getting picked on? Uh yeah, it's actually worse now I was in it was in Bath. Bath, okay. So which is quite posh. It is very Is it it's very posh and very boring drives a man to crime. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> um but yeah, I was like uh I was like the only Russian kid and there weren't just many just immigrant kids period. Um I think there was like one or two Pakistani guys and one Iranian guy, and that that's it pretty much. It's more diverse now, but at the time, yeah, there weren't many foreigners, especially not many Russians. And uh, everyone's point of reference for Russians, of course, was just like James Bond films. So I just had to deal with Nikolai, Russian spy, all the time. And eventually it, I just snapped, and I just beat the shit out of this one kid. And then, uh, yeah... Then my life kind of went down the toilet from there. So you got involved in drugs at what age? I think about seventeen. And what was that? So just Weird. after school. Um, no, nah, I I jumped in the deep end straight away. I was all about the the ecstasy and MDMA. So what year is this? This would be about two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You still in Bath? Yeah, yeah, but I was going over to Bristol because uh, Bristol it's the it's a drum and bass capital of the UK.
0: Oh.
1: It's also perhaps coincidentally the ketamine capital of the UK, right? But yeah, I'd go to Bristol every every weekend. I'd go to raves either um there's a couple of clubs where you can pretty much do what you want, or sometimes the the illegal raves. So sometimes like some field or under a bridge or in some warehouse or something like that. And yeah, I'd just I'd be the dodgy guy sitting around going. Pills, weed, pills,
0: weed. <laughs> that was name. So as a stranger in numerous foreign lands, you got this stress. Um, you know, you're standing out, getting picked on, getting in fights. What I found was when I threw the raves and I formed this organization and all these people joined in with us, and we, we were kind of like a rave crime family. Yeah, yeah. We were all misfits. But yeah. we all came together and we bonded and we all had these stories of you know, things that happened in our lives that had made us misfits. And it, it, yeah, yeah, it strikes yeah. me that this is a, a parallel path for you. Yeah. And then when you take ecstasy and you bond with people, for the first time in your life, you feel something else, like a sense of belonging. Yeah. Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, like,
1: the fir- I mean, the first time take ecstasy, ex- like, it, ne- it never gets as good as the first time. The first time is always the charm. But yeah, like when I, when I was next to you, like I could talk to people more openly. Do you want um, to take
0: us back to that very first time you took E? That very first day. Do you remember any details from it?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I was having a, a bit of a bit of girl drama,
0: and when you say girl drama, what do you mean specifically?
1: Oh, just like teenage crush sort of thing. I was probably about eight. Yeah, 18, I was still... No, I was still in sixth form, I think. So I was about 17, maybe.
0: And I just... So you, had a, you had a crush that wasn't getting returned?
1: Yeah. Okay. And, um... So I, I, was, I was selling MDMA at that point, but I hadn't actually tried it yet. Okay. Um, So I just thought that night, I thought, fuck it, try it. And then I just went to the, the local Weatherspoons, and I wasn't sure how you're supposed to take it, or how much you're supposed to take. So I just... I just poured out, like, a whole half gram over the, um, over the, what's the toilet paper thing called? That's five hits of pure. Yeah, and I just railed that through my nose.
0: Oh.
1: Uh, I think I came out of the cubicle about 20 minutes later, just still crying, just, like, feeling like someone, like, Mike Tyson just slammed me in the face. And then, like, when I got out, like, just having sips from the tap and stuff and then when I got out back into the bar and suddenly it kicked in I was like douche 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 I was
0: flying man so that would have kicked in fast through the nose because if your digestive system's out the loop you get it right away through the schnoz
1: yeah yeah it was about 15 or 20 minutes yeah didn't take long yeah and then I was just moonwalking man I was just moonwalking <laughs> through town you know in slow motion like Neil Armstrong <laughs> I was just, I was just going through my whole phone book. I was just calling everyone in my phone book, and then, like at the time, one of my one of my mates' dads owned a nightclub, and there was some kind of private party going on there. But I just wandered in. He just let me in, he just assumed I was invited. And I just was there, just like chatting shit to people. They had no idea who this guy is. This guy just like wandered in off <laughs> the street. You're the man
0: now. Yeah, yeah. When you're on your phone, did you, did you, uh, were you tempted to call the woman who you had the crush on? no 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 i had i had i had most more... oh, did I... that all melt away all that stress yeah i just away? i just didn't think about that yeah everything just melts doesn't it
1: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and then i know was like three or four hours of that just like floating around town <laughs> i think uh then i went home but i was still buzzing so i was up until like three or four in the morning just like listening to music Still, still calling people up. They're like, Nico, what the fuck you want, man? It's three o'clock in the morning.
0: <laughs> who, who were your DJs of choice back then? Um, no, I wasn't really like um, following. I was more of like a hip hop guy. Okay, on drum and bass, you say jungle.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, but that was just kind of for business. But for like for myself, I'm more of like a hip hop guy or like okay. an old school rock guy. Yeah. But yeah, I was listening to. I was very into Tupac then. So I was listening to a lot of Tupac when I got home. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, it's like the early, like the mid to late 2000s. So he kept like popping up all those albums from Beyond the Grave, all those remixes of Tupac. (laughs) So I was just listening to all those in a row. Mm.
0: So you've got like a role now in the scene. You're distributing drugs. You're taking drugs. It's giving you more confidence to click with all the people as it does. So, is this plain sailing now, or do you run into any problems as a junior drug seller? Um, yeah, I. uh, So one time at one of the illegal raves, I
1: actually ended up getting stabbed.
0: Okay, run that down in detail, then, please.
1: Well, first of all, I was on something called 2CB at the time, so I wasn't like fully, fully like aware of what people other like i couldn't read people
0: that well which is a powerful hallucinogenic
1: yeah it's kind of like cross between acid and mdma but also weirder yeah yeah so i was at this illegal rave and these three kids in hoodies came up to me and like they took me to the side and they're like oh how much for like a half gram i said them i don't remember how much i was like 15 20 something like that They're like how much for the whole lot i was like guys and and do wholesale and they're, they're like i don't remember exactly what they said or what happened next but i remember i kind of it was getting a bit hilarious i pushed one of them out of the way and another one was like "Oi, why are you making moves on my mate like that and something hit me on the side of the head i know like feels a fist or like some other object and like i could see sp- uh, sparks flying around you know like a cartoon like sparks and little birds and then uh, next thing I know, I'm down on the ground. These guys are like, kicking the shit out of me. Um, and then I got stabbed. I got s- I got sliced on the arm. I got stabbed like mildly here. I think it just hit a rib, so it didn't do any damage. then, but most I got stabbed in my leg, uh, which sounds odd now, like just like some dwarf stabbing me. But it's just like the nearest part of me to them. I think they were trying to kill me. I think they were just trying to make sure I couldn't get back up again to get at them. Yeah. And yeah, they took all my uh, they took all my gear and all my cash, but I managed to hold on to my gold chain and my phone.
0: <laughs> and how soon is it, like, for me in your book, you describe it in a way whereby your adrenaline was going so high you didn't understand that you'd been stabbed properly. Yeah. But there I... was, like, a blood. You started to see the blood.
1: Yeah, so basically, um, I didn't actually. Maybe it was the adrenaline, and also, as later on I found out, the, uh, the knife actually severed my nerve ending, so I literally couldn't feel any pain. Um, so I actually didn't know what happened. So I just went back to like the rave proper, uh, see if I can find some friends. Those guys were long gone by then, and like I just stayed there till the sun came up, and then like only then, as we were walking back from the rave. I hear like this sort of squishing sound coming from my shoe. And I look down, just like the whole left side of my body is just covered in blood. And that's when I thought, you know, maybe I should uh, maybe I should see a doctor about this, this little ailment. And yeah, but then for some reason, I decided to call a taxi, which cost me four pounds. But really, I should have called an ambulance and would have been free.
0: <laughs> so they, uh, they stitched you up, did they?
1: Yeah, the nurse actually surprised I hadn't passed out from blood loss because I was just basically walking around this rave, just bleeding all over the place for about three hours before I realized
0: anything was wrong. Crazy bastard! Wow. So, any other insane stories from your rave days?
1: Uh, I think that's probably the worst one. At some point, um, later when I moved to uh, to London, um, I ran into like a uh, like, I got into a st- kind of a sticky situation with some with some Asian guys. Are you still dealing at this point? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, basically, this was all, like, a scam, and I shouldn't have been worried, really. But at the time, like, you don't know it's a scam. And then I thought they were actually, like, going to kill me. They were trying to extort me and stuff. And, like, I remember one of them called me up, and, like, I heard this click, click over the phone. You know, like, they're cocking a gun to the phone. I know what it was, but like at the time, I was already, I was already shook. So like, I'm, I'm ready to believe anything, you know. And I'm not a gangster. I'm not a tough guy. I'm just like a student kind of misfits or a guy, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a pussy. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) So that's the other kind of main bad thing that I paid up in the end, and they left me alone. Paid up for what? Uh, paid up for. A load of Coke that they claimed I was responsible for disappearing.
0: Uh, how much Coke was that? Uh, I think it was like two grands worth. Did you the coke ever come into your hands?: No, so basically they just pressured you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. They pretend they're going on a deal with me, and then because i chipped in and then they were like held, holding me responsible for the last win. Yeah. inadvertedly some obviously something went wrong in the deal.
0: I'm familiar with that one. So, is this deterring you from pursuing this lifestyle, or are you thinking lesson learned? I'm going to keep doing illegal activity.
1: Yeah, it's like you, um, if you are. I just thought like that experience would make me a better drug dealer. Just like trust people less. Uh, always take cash up front. Don't be too hasty into getting into business with people you don't know. You know, I was still quite young then. I was
0: still running the ropes. So, where are you sourcing your drugs from? I always like to have like. <laughs> Got it. I was like to have
1: like five or six different suppliers. So, just in case one of them dried up or um, one of them gave me a better deal. But I always try to deal with as many of them at the same time as I can. So, I'd have like a different guy one guy for weed, one guy for Coke, one guy for MDMA. Um, yeah, I was, I was dealing with all sorts. I had. I had some other Asian guys, some Bengali guys. They're, like, my main co-connect. Um, I had some white guys from up in Nottingham. They're my weed connect. And um, my co-connect's, like, these Rastas from West London. And how much money are you making? No, I never sat down to work it out, probably. But I think overall it would have been about two grand a month. Like, in terms of profit, it will be about two grand a month. So I was about on a... Sort of like yuppie wage by London standards. So, yeah.
0: It's right. expensive, isn't it, to live in London? Yeah, that eats away. You're getting by with two grand. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then what was the first sign of police trouble? You
1: know, I never got any. Oh, no. No, no, no. There was that one time. So one time I was at a. I was planning on going to a rave. So the way raves, like these illegal raves are organized now, a lot of it's like over Facebook. So they put up an event and then they put up a number and it's like, you call us on the night. So um, obviously some moron had um, posted the address on Facebook before the official release time. So the feds clocked it. They got there. They sealed the area off. And uh, so everyone was just like, you know what? Fuck it. There's like 200 of us. Let's just go to this park nearby. So we, we all caught a bus. We all went to this park. Somehow the feds got there as well, but there was only two of them. There was only two of them and two cars. So we we're like, all right, you know what? There's like 200 of us. Let's just rush over them. What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. So then it's like, three, two, one, go. And I ran and I ran and I ran. And like, all of a sudden, I realized I can only hear my footsteps. And I look back and there's just these two cops looking at me like, what the fuck? And like everyone else, had just stood there laughing at me as so I just ran past police lines, and like I can't really run back. And this is like on the far edge of West London, so like I'd actually run out of London. I ran through some fields. <laughs> when uh, what's like the um, the main road, like the M25?
0: M25, yeah,
1: that leads to London. Yeah, I went on the M25 and I went back into London. Jeez. Took me about an hour, I think. And then by the time I got there, there I got back. there was like like an improvised street party in that same place, so some guy just jacked up his uh car stereo to the max, yeah, so everyone was just there dancing on the uh-huh. street. so I was just like, "You know what? just i uh, do my thing while I'm here what what are those cops gonna do?" and then they called in reinforcements, and all the vans started coming out I was like, oh shit i should have I should have just left ages ago i'm but I'm an idiot, but um. So then one of them spots me, and I start kind of walking away, and he's like, oi, oi. I just ran again, but this time I know there's like a good two or three cops chasing after me, and I still had like a fair bit of weed left. So what I was doing is as I was running, I was throwing like the baggies onto the yeah. floor, but I kept one baggie for myself just so like when they stop me, there'll be a reason why I'm running, you know what I mean? Oh. So they wouldn't go back and search. Um uh, I jumped over like a brick wall, but then on the other side of the brick wall, just then the police found us coming, so I hit the oh. windshield, rolled off the windshield, oh. and like three or four cops jumped on me. Yikes. Yeah, but I only got, got cautioned for that, and then, um, then in the morning when they let me out, uh, I just went back and picked up the rest of my weed. <laughs> <lead.
0: laughs> so how did all this escalate to a two and a half year sentence for supply?
1: Oh, that was another another part of another bit of dumbassery on uh, on my behalf. So I always tell people, don't take drugs in the tube. There are dogs in the tube. So sometimes um, when you're living in London, the do- uh, the police like, like to stand on top of the escalators with dogs, and it's just like an easy way for them to rack up arrest numbers without really doing much work. Ooh. And I was wary of that, and I, I like I always warn people when I see. Uh, dogs at a certain station, but that night I was kind of in a rush, so I put uh I was going to meet my friend um I put just put like th- uh, three grams of MDMA in my back pocket, uh but they were in half gram wraps, so it looked like six grams. So three grams I could have blagged for personal use, maybe, maybe, but six wraps is kind of hard. And I got to the top of the escalators, and the dogs are there, and I, like. It was Tottenham Court Road, so you, it's one of those stations where you can't just turn and pretend you're going to a different platform. So I thought, you know, I'd chance it, because dogs, like, it's uh, it's a game for dogs. So their, dogs' attention span is like 20 minutes, half an hour. So I was kind of hoping that the dogs are just there for show now, that they long got bored of finding people. Um... I don't know if the dogs actually picked up on me or not or did. he they, they just wanted to search me and they pretend like the dogs picked up on me. What
0: kind of a dog was it? I don't remember. I think it's a German Shepherd. Because they can't smell ecstasy, can they, German Shepherds? Isn't oh. it beagles? Oh, no, they definitely weren't beagles. Too okay. big for that. Okay. I think the Shepherds can only smell like coke and weed. And it takes specially trained beagles to smell ecstasy. Less things have changed. That's what it used to be. Maybe because maybe I'd smoked some weed or I handled weed before that okay. they smelled like the residue on That'll me. That'll do it. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah I had people yeah. busted with the, had weed and they had ecstasy on them, 10,000 pills and a little amount of weed and the weed got them busted. Motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so you're busted now for the ecstasy. Yeah. And where did they take you? Um, Just some police station,
1: I don't remember which one. But what I do remember is, um, so I got one phone call. I couldn't get through to my mate who has a sick lawyer. So I just called my other mate and we talked about Django because Django just came out in cinemas. And I was like, I want to stay out of my cell as long as possible. And I just I just really drew out that conversation. <laughs> All the little cameos in Django. You know that, Um,
0: I, have you seen Django? I've seen it a long time ago. There's yes.
1: this there's this bit in the in the bar when he's in the bar and there's some guy who says, What's your name? He says Django, then he spells out D J A N G O and it says, uh the D is silent, and the guy says, I know. So that's the guy who played the original Django, like the Italian version from the sixties. So I just really just drawn out all those points, like as long as I could before they were just like, Come on, come on. <laughs> and then I know that um I wasn't I wasn't there at the time, but I bunch of my mates were in my flat and they got um they just ordered the pizza and the pizza man and the feds arrived at the same time. <laughs> so there was a very confused pizza man walking up the stairs <laughs> while the all these cops are like walking down the stairs carrying massive bags <laughs> of weed, like massive bundles of cash. Oh. Obviously the cops got snarky. like,
0: oh you ordered us something, have you? <laughs> so they're disrupting your career at this point then. Do you, when do you find out how much time you're facing? Um so There's a website. Um
1: I had a really shitty court appointed lawyer because they took all my money. I didn't want to get my parents involved at this stage. But there was a website. There's like a minimum requirements where you can kind of work out depending how much they caught you with, what they caught you with in your role. So I thought like the minimum I was looking at was two years. So I ended up getting two and a
0: half from the judge, and you have to serve fifty percent of that in the UK, right? Yeah, I
1: got out a little earlier because I was a good boy and didn't start any fights.
0: Okay, now when you were in there being a good boy, were you thinking I'm gonna remain a good boy when I get out? Or are you thinking I'm gonna go right back to the lifestyle?
1: You no, know that's the thing. I always kept think- that's the main thing on my mind. Is like, what's gonna happen when I get out? Like, will anyone employ me? uh shit like that um i don't know i didn't i know i never came to like a sort of conclusive idea of what i was gonna do when i get out all i had all i knew was like i had to get out of here that's my main focus
0: when did you start getting interested in all the things when i introduced you to be in this video all those different parts of the drug war and the mafia were you forming an interest in, in these uh, entities in prison or before prison? When when did all that begin? I was quite interested in that before,
1: but kind of, you know, like a sort of like in a casual way. So, like, I'd watch, like, I don't know, like uh, The Untouchables or whatever, then I'd look up the real story on Wikipedia. Um, but when I fully got interest was in prison when I read, like, so there's these kind of books that everyone reads in prison. So one of them is the one by uh, Charles Bronson, and another one is uh, Mister Nice by Howard Marks. There's like the two of the prison bibles in the UK, at least. And um, I got really into into Howard Marks. And I was I thought it was really uh, inspirational how like all his thoughts, all his ideas, like his not only like his his like smuggling career, but how like. Um, how should I say, all the ideas that came afterwards, like for the legalization of cannabis, for example, he was a big proponent of that, how he became a counterculture icon, so that's really what put me on that track. And the other book I read there was um, El Narco. Uh, I think you had the guy on your podcast a while ago, right? So, Joan
0: Grillo that's it. was our guest a couple of months ago. It did really well, fascinating guy. He's been on Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah. And um
1: He was one of my inspirations as well.
0: Yeah. It it, it looks like um you guys went some of the same places. Yeah, like yeah. Like Chapo's pe El Chapo's people.
1: Yeah, I think um one of our uh well this guy in Sinaloa, he
0: works with uh Grilla as well. My my man Miguel. Okay, before we get to Mexico though, <laughs> Let's just go back to your story chronologically. What did you do when you got out of prison? Not a lot, man. I was on tax. So I
1: couldn't do much. I had to be home from seven till seven each day for a couple months and uh there's a lot of house parties in that time. okay. I remember why one... still
0: consuming drugs heavily,
1: yeah, yeah. I remember like the my sort of big getting out party, so i made uh I made hash cakes <laughs> or I attempted to make hash cakes um. I ended up poisoning about twelve people, including oh. myself. Um, yeah, me and edibles don't go down well, oh. and I had no idea how strong it was going to be. Um, that plus alcohol—I just there are pe- people come from all other, all over, like all other towns. Like Bright- I was in London, people come from like Brighton and Essex and stuff to see me. But nobody saw me because I was just in the toilet just spaced out of my mind. Oh. It was like half throwing up, half just like anticipating diarrhea just because I put so much weird shit in this hash mix. Uh, at some point, I managed to get the energy to get out of the bathroom, go upstairs, go to my room, just KO. But then this guy, uh, drunk off his ass, just wandered into my room, just threw up all over my back. And that just instantly sobered me up. That. I'm glad he did that because that's when I realized, okay, I got a shower now, I got to clean the shit off my bed.
0: Um, but yeah, I'm still on it, still on it. Was that your worst drug experience ever, or did you have a uh, experience on ketamine that was quite extreme?
1: Oh yeah, so back in my back in my Bristol days, uh, this was just before I was doing. Uh, some guy sold me some ket that that he said was coke. And that was an evil trick, man. Because I bashed out a massive line. Uh, this is this is like, um, this is quite a, shall we say, like a loose nightclub. It's a bouncer came up to him, but he said, alright, why can't you out in the bathroom like everyone else? I was like, sorry, man, I just did the line. And 15 minutes later, I was just like, <laughs> I could like see through the back of my head. I'm <laughs> like, I thought I was dying, man. I thought like... I was passing on, and like apparently, like my friends saw what I was doing, and um apparently they left me, and I came back like a few hours later, and I was still like just I was still in the fifth dimension <laughs> that was fucked up that was fucked up <laughs> um,
0: so you said you had an easy you were a good boy in prison. Yeah. But but was what was prison like for you?
1: Uh, there was a lot of fights, like a lot. Like I wasn't any of them, but maybe one or two like play fights.
0: But how were you accepted because of your background and accent? Oh, it's all right because by this
1: point I was in London, so everyone's all multicultural there. Okay. So yeah, it was fine. And by that point, you know, I was working out quite a lot, and so I didn't look like a pussy i might be inside but i didn't look like one which is important and um now i got along fine with everyone i tried to be not friends but you know i tried to kind of treat everyone with respect pretty much got treated with respect and it was all right um did you drink drink any hooch yeah yeah that was the great hooch scandal of uh 013 So it's kind of a it's kind of a tradition in UK prisons uh every Christmas like some of the brothers brew up some hooch. So you get some um you get some bread, uh some kind of fruit, some sugar and a lot of water and I think you keep adding like bread and sugar over about 2 weeks and eventually get this kind of shitty sort of cider <laughs> which smells like vomit but it gets you fucking drunk. So we had some of that and I um I agreed for my cell to be used as the bar. Uh I had a I had an alibi so like me and my mate we went to the gym as during uh, association hours. Uh but then they fucked up because they should gone they shouldn't they should have gone into cell like one by one but everyone piled into my cell at once. It's so like they can clearly see on the CCTV there's like a fight or some kind of gangbang going on I don't know. Um, So they all went in there, busted everyone, busted me as well. I got put on um, on solitary for like a couple of days, but luckily they couldn't prove anything because um, I was away. I was at the gym. So like my excuse was, I just, I don't know what's happening in my cell. Uh, And the other guys, like, I think there was like 33 of us charged all together and all but two of us got away with it because everyone else in the cell they couldn't prove that they were in the cell drinking they could have come into the cell to tell everyone else to stop drinking for all they know Uh, one guy kind of um, got drunk and told the guards to suck your mom and another guy I think they worked out that he was the one making it he was the hooch baron but all the rest of us bust case man (laughs) that was a that was a pretty successful. well it wasn't as ba- didn't go as bad as it could
0: have gone. Let's say that it wasn't a victory. Did you get any disciplinary tickets that stuck?
1: No nah, no serious ones, just like refusal to go into cell like a few times, but not nothing that
0: and did you meet any interesting characters in prison?
1: Yeah, I met a few I met um so. One thing that a lot of people... We have TVs in our cell in uh, in UK prison. If you behave yourself, you get a TV. Like, it's a—it's uh, another way of controlling people because they're not going to kick off if they've got the TV to lose. It's the babysitter. Yeah. Um. So whenever Crime Watch is on, everyone watches Crime Watch because they're just <laughs> looking out for their buddies. And I remember um, there was one time there was this... Um, not crime Watch, but there's a similar show called Fight Back Britain. It's about people taking the law into their own hands. And there's this one clip of this uh, this old granny. Now, uh, basically, there's a it's somewhere in Norfolk, I think. And you can you can look this up on YouTube. In Norfolk, like a smash and grab robbery. So, like uh, three mopeds, two guys on each, drive up to this jeweler, start smashing in the windows with hammers, grabbing all the jewelry inside. And then out of nowhere comes like this, I don't know, like this se- seventy year old grandma. She's like half blind, so she doesn't know what's going on. She thinks they're like beating up some other kids, so she starts just like swinging her handbag at them, and they're they're a fucking surprised because like they know what to do because like you're not gonna hit the old lady with a hammer like in broad daylight. So they just get scared and drive off. And she actually manages to fling her handbag at one of them and knock them off the scooter.
0: Whoa!
1: I love, like, in the video, everyone just joins in, just, but only after, like, the old lady softened them up. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) as soon as that clip comes on, you can just hear everyone laughing (laughs) from our cell and just banging on their cell doors. Because those guys, they showed, like, the mugshots of everyone involved in that raid, and, like, two of
0: those guys are on our wing. Oh! They lost all their street cred instantly, softened up by the granny, psychotic granny. <laughs>
1: and there's a there's another story. I don't want to go too far into it for legal reason, also because oh. I'm not sure if it's fully true. But like a couple of years ago, like a well-known UK rapper got stabbed, and the guy who stabbed him and his brother was on my wing. So apparently, again, like this could just be jailhouse bullshit. But apparently, like, his brother is, like, uh, a big-time gangster. And uh, he apparently put a hit out on this rapper. And the rapper got so shook, he called him up in prison. He he offered him, like, ten grand to quash the beef. And he was like, no, like, you fingered my brother for attempted murder. You're going down. But that rapper is still alive and not in a ditch somewhere. So I guess they managed to sort it in the end. I heard that same rumor when I was outside, though. So I suspect there's
0: some truth to it. Was that rapper on True Geordie podcast? I'm not sh- I haven't seen that okay. one. Okay. Okay. Um any famous people that you met in prison? Um it's a couple of footballers, but I
1: haven't I haven't really watched football so I know who they were. Um no high profile killers? No. Oh, there's one guy um who I just seen on TV who was working they had this sort of a prison restaurant in London called The Clink, where prisoners can work, but like normal people can just come in and eat there. And he was on there, and then I, I saw him off camera a few weeks later in my prison. So obviously he'd fucked up his job. Oh, it's a shame. That's the closest I came to
0: celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what is your first job when you get out of prison?
1: My first job, ooh. Um,. So I worked freelance for a while. I was, um, I was writing essays for lazy students at university because I had, um, I had a master's degree as well. I was selling drugs while I was at uni. I had a master's degree, so it's pretty easy for me. But What's not... your master's degree in? Uh, so my, my bachelor's was in history and my master's was in uh, criminology. Okay. <laughs> my exams actually had to be um, deferred for a year because I was in prison. <laughs> I fi- I'd finished all my coursework, but then, then I went away. So I had to write them a really awkward letter. And, like, you know, like a bunch of the professors teaching at my uni, they were like either ex policemen or they're like closely tied. So that was a very awkward letter to write, you know? <laughs> hey,
0: you got bored of the books and decided to do a practical application of what you were studying. Exactly. <laughs> F- field research, real world research exactly so immersive
1: anthropology <laughs>
0: you're using you're using your um, penmanship to hustle and then what work do you get after that
1: and then after that my only other job was um, I think after like three years of no two years of writing those essays I finally got a job at RT like the um, the Russian broadcaster yeah but it wasn't very exciting. I was just sat there in the newsroom just typing up stories. Not articles, not like opinion pieces, just typing up stories.
0: Yeah. So what made you suddenly want to get right in this book?
1: Um, well, it's uh, while I was in prison, I wrote quite a few hours to people on the outside. And some people thought, you know, like they're quite funny, they're quite insightful and whatever. So I thought I started doing a few articles as well on the side, just like freelance as well as my RT stuff. And yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. Just one day I thought, you know what? Why not write a book? I mean, I know about this stuff. Uh, It's an excuse to travel to places. Uh, When I was at RT as well, I met like uh, quite a few people doing like documentaries and stuff. So they had sources in some countries where I wouldn't, for example, like Mexico and the Philippines that I could use. And um, yeah, it's just an excuse to get out, really, because that, I was living in Moscow. I was living like one of those crappy, like Soviet-style communal flats. There was a big family there. There, they had like six kids, three adults, and two cats. So I wanted to get the fuck out of there as much as I could. You went back to Russia. Yeah, I was living in Moscow.
0: I see. But a lot of people, you know, they'll sit down, get on the computer, typewriter, write the book. You went to Mexico, Philippines, Serbia, Japan, Colombia. I mean, this is a huge project. Did it, from inception, was it going to be a huge project or did it just develop organically like this?
1: You know, at the beginning, like, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of trying to get whatever sources I could find and just go along with that. And, yeah, it just sort of ended up kind of mushrooming by itself. I was taking a lot of. um, I I was still working at RT at the time, so I basically used a lot of my holiday time. So I'd book. uh, I'd book three weeks off. One good good thing about RT is, um, at least in Russia, they let you carry over the holidays from one year if you don't use your holiday. I don't know if they still do that. But so one year I didn't. The first year I didn't take any holidays, but in the next year I just used. I had like double holidays. So I was like three weeks in Mexico, three weeks in the Philippines. I had a couple of small ones. I had, like, a week in Italy
0: and things like that, yeah. So if you were in Russia then, did you start with the Russian mob?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, that guy was... Um, so I was also doing, like, not really volunteering, but helping out sometimes with, um, like, an NGO, which helps out drug addicts in Moscow. And one of the guys who was working there, uh, I think I have him as Sergei in the book. Uh, it's a pseudonym. But he's a really fucking friendly guy. You would not know that he is a convicted murderer by talking to him. But he went away, I think, for the first time at the age of 16, no, 14 even. And um, when he was growing up this like late 80s, early 90s, there was quite a lot of street gangs for him, especially in his city in Kazan, which is like on the eastern side of European Russia. And his logic was, you know, like, if the kid from the other street is trying to cave your head in with a brick, you got to do it first. And, yeah, he had a lot of crazy stories, man. Can you tell us his crazy stories? I remember, so, one time, uh, this this was like, he, he left the mob after this. But, like, one time he was at his apartment and he's reading a book. Uh, this is the pre-Netflix era. He's reading a book and then he just bends down to pick something up off the floor and just then like a gunshot rings through his window, smashing his window, like all these bits of wood and glass everywhere. And suddenly like you know, like in um in uh in The Godfather part two, like that hit on Michael's house, you know where the gunfire goes through the windows? It was like that basically. But he wasn't Michael Corleone, so he was like, Yeah, I'm 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 this is me. This is my stuff, guys. And who was trying to get him? Uh, just a rival gang. I think there are about there was a lot of about a hundred gangs in that city at the time. Some of them kind of morphed together into bigger crime syndicates, but there are quite a few smaller gangs. Uh oh, he was also in prison with the um with the Zakonya, which is like the sort of the traditional kind of Russian mafia It grew out of the, the gulags in Stalins era. They have all these prison tattoos and stuff. Um Can you describe the prison tattoos? And can you just say that name again for them? It means uh thieves in law or thi- thieves who live by the the code, like the thieves code.
0: And these are the old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of the gulag. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what's the tat?
1: Um there's one guy actually I met in um in prison here in, in London. He was Lithuanian. he was like half Russian, half Lithuanian, but he had one of the tattoos. He had the like stars on his knees which means that he'll never kneel before authority. But there's other ones, and they, all have a, they used to have a meaning. I think now now people just get them because it's cool. But they used like back in the day, they used to have a lot of meanings, like stars on your shoulders. You couldn't get that unless you were some kind of gang leader, for example. People used to tattoo uh, pictures of Lenin and Stalin on their hearts back when they had the death penalty because they thought that the guards would never shoot at a picture of Lenin or Stalin.
0: <laughs>
1: my dad actually he um he brought me uh the this, this the three three part encyclopedia of Russian prison tattoos he sent to me while I was in prison, but there was like the long drama about it that they the the authorities wouldn't let me have it the the prison govs because it had nudity and like racist content, but all the nudity it was just like a bunch of like old guys. With like fading blue ink on their bodies <laughs> and like swastika. There, there was like swastikas there, but they're like, you know, in an academic context. It's like, just like, this is the kind of tattoos people were. It's like in a history book. If you read any book about World War II, you have like Nazi pictures and stuff.
0: You mentioned Sergei. Did he have any tattoos? No. Nah. Um, but a lot of his friends did. So that's the old school yeah. Mafia from the Gulag. Is there a separate new school mafia, Russian mafia, and they, do they have different tats? Uh, they're not really about the tat because, like, in the what happened in the nineties
1: when the the communism fell, so the the I are calling the thieves in law. They came from communism, so they had like there was an ideology then, the communist ideology, and they had their own kind of, I'm going to say, semi-anarchist sort of ideology. Uh, But once that ideology is over, like, everyone's just about making money now. So the new guys, they're more like kind of Western-style gangsters. Uh, They didn't really have any kind of, like, uh, any weird rules or principles like the old guys did. And a lot of them, like, their end goal, because the thieves-in-law, they'd kind of be, they'd kind of be like, you know, like the mafia, like, they're, they're, like, in this for life. Like, the new school gangsters, they all wanted to to legitimize themselves in some way. They all wanted to be big business. A lot of them are in the government now. So um, the president... I think he's the president or the prime minister of Crimea now, the region Crimea. He went by the nickname Goblin in the 1990s, and I, it's quite well-documented. At some point, there was, like, some kind of hit on him, and he got shot in the shoulder while he was
0: driving the car. So, yeah, that's the that's the new school. Do both schools, that they have certain codes like with the italian mafia old school people i met where you don't harm women or kids or are they more like the colombians and mexicans where they'll chop you up torture your family kill your pet dog and put it on youtube um you know like they
1: like originally the aboribs are going they're like very adverse to violence because They're kind of, they had this sort of weird like honor amongst thieves thing where you could only make money from thievery and you're considered like an unskilled thief if you had to like threaten people. You had to, because they're mostly like, you know, like pickpocketing, burglary, kind of that kind of stuff. Um, Sort of like 70s, 80s, that sort of faded away. Like they became less stringent about their rules. The void themselves, I mean. And the new guys don't give a fuck, really. Um, They still have to, because if they, they're going to end up in prison one day, the vore they're still quite strong in prison. So they still have to abide by the thieves' law at some point. But there was, like, some big massacre, like, I think, 2009? Like, in some village. Um, Yeah, and they just killed a whole family there, just, like, clubbed their heads in. It's a big story. And then it turned out that one of those guys, um, he'd actually been doing shit like this for a while, like pretty much with impunity in this little village uh, because he was tied to all the police and politicians. There's a picture of him somewhere like standing next to Putin and stuff. Wow. I don't think that Putin's like mates with him or anything, but like he had that kind of reach that he could be at the same party as Putin.
0: So with the new school Russian mafia then, how is it structured? is there like a Godfather and a consigliere and an underboss and then all these different levels? Is it structured like similar to the Italian or is it, does it have a completely different structure?
1: I don't think there's much of a structure. I think it's quite loose. So you have these sort of like, uh, gangs still exist. Like, like Sergei was in one. Um, but then like the top bosses, they would be more like, it's more like a marriage of convenience. Like, so like, they still have those connections from back when they were running the streets. They're mostly busy with their own legit business, politics, stuff like that. But when when they have a when they have a problem that needs solving, they know who to call. It's more like that, I think.
0: <laughs> so how many people did Sergei murder? Uh,
1: at least one that I know of. Yeah. But I've met over
0: the over the course of writing this book, I've met people have killed way way more uh, in, in terms of the people you met in russia did you meet anyone who who'd killed pe- a lot of people
1: no that was the only one in russia but in the philippines um i sat down with this guy i don't know if you how much you know about the situation in the philippines they have this crazy new president there uh rodrigo duterte and his thing is basically we're just gonna fucking kill everyone it's like all uh Drug dealers, all drug addicts, and maybe like a couple of people who've been accused of being that. Because who needs evidence, right? Fuck it. But yes, he's got these death squads going around. I think, I'm not sure, it's hard to say like getting exact figures about this sort of thing, but I heard one estimate it's like 26,000 people have been turned to fertilizer now.
0: And this is the hardest drug policy that's been instituted all over the world presently is in the Philippines.
1: Yeah, like not officially, like they didn't have the death penalty of fish like they do in place like Saudi Arabia, but unofficially like, yeah. And has that
0: stopped the drugs?
1: Uh, well, we found some meth in Manila, so no.
0: <laughs> it's made it more expensive though. And the more expensive it gets, the bigger the profit margin, so the more incentive for the mafia to keep producing it. That's the thing. So like when I met this guy,
1: um... This uh this executioner guy. So he this was this is like a whole story by itself. So we went out into like the outskirts of Manila, like the eastern outskirts, the suburb, went to this kind of dodgy karaoke bar and he was already waiting upstairs and he already had like his belly on, uh he had a backpack, he had a pistol in his backpack and the little um what's it called, the zipper on his backpack was a bullet. He pulls out his pistol like starts waving it around. I was kind of thinking, like, what have I got myself into? But at the same time, like, I've made him come all this way because he obviously doesn't live there either. And he's probably going to be pissed off if I just, like, leave him here, right? So I kind of have to do this interview now. Uh, But, yeah, he he told me that he killed um, 32 people. Um, but that's like over the course of his career, but in the last, like since 2016 business has been picking up and the way he told me was, um, so his boss was, uh, some kind of general, like some, he was an officer in the military. And he also told me that a bunch of times they send him in not to, not to kill, uh, drug dealers, but just shake them off a bit so they know who to pay up. And if they pay up, they get left alone. So in a way, I like, I'm not I think it's quite a mix. I think there's like some genuinely some vigilantes, like true believers out there as well who are getting in the mix. But it seems like a lot of it seems to be kind of monopolizing the market rather than getting rid of it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, General Pinochet, he did a similar thing, didn't he, with the cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Um So these politicians who are fighting the war on drugs are usually just wiping out the competition so they can siphon off the drug money themselves. And I'm glad you... Nationalising it. Yes. And I'm glad you have, from your own experience, you've come to that conclusion because that's the exact same conclusion I've come to. People used to call me a conspiracy theorist years ago for saying that, especially with the CIA stuff. But now people accept that the CIA were bringing on all this coke... The to America yeah. for the Contras while the American government was locking up all these people for crack and, and coke use the cocaine import agency <laughs> <laughs> so what stories have you got from the Philippines that was the main one that was the fucked up one. what, what but... else did he tell you in the, during this interview
1: oh another weird like little detail is um so obviously uh, he he works as part of a team it's not just him it's part of like the death squad it's a group of people um sometimes he's not always the shooter sometimes he's just like the scout sometimes he's the getaway driver or whatever and uh, one thing he told me was um his his side job when he's not when he's not working on that and when he's not uh putting people in the ground is he's a cutlery salesman so he sells like spoons forks stuff like that So when he's staking out a target like for a couple of days before, sometimes he goes undercover as like a cutlery salesman, like a traveling cutlery salesman. So, yeah, um, be careful who you buy your spoons from in the Philippines.
0: So what? They just like get information that there is an operation, a drug dealing operation, and without any legal sanction, they just go in and wipe these guys out
1: yeah well, usually they give them a heads up beforehand so they can kind of squeeze some money out of them. That's how part of them work. I think the others are um they're the others are like just politician uh politicians are police they've got certain figures that they've got to live up to, and just killing people is an easier way to reach those figures so that's also going on so what's the collateral
0: damage here There's a lot of innocent people getting hit in the crossfire
1: a lot, yeah, and some of them actually have nothing to do with drugs. it's just um it's just now it's open season on the poor, basically. That, like anyone can do a murder, uh, then like put a sign around their neck, pusher, don't be like me or something. Make it look like a drug hit, and then just leave the bodies out there. There's quite a few stories I heard like that.
0: So, which country did you go to next?
1: Uh, just before Philippines, I was in Mexico. Mexico got, is more fun. You
0: got a Mexican uh, top, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I got a little. <laughs> Brought a little souvenir. I hope this doesn't make me look too fat. But yeah, I was there for um for Day of the Dead.
0: <laughs> Día de los Muertes.
1: Yeah, I try to time all my visits so I'm like at a
0: local festivals. You know, might as well make the most of it, right? Because <laughs> they take that stuff very seriously, don't they? Yeah, Some yeah. Of these cartel yeah. guys.
1: Yeah, um, we went to this uh this cartel cemetery. In uh Sinaloa, I forgot the I think it's called Humai or something like that it's cartel cemetery, and these guys live large and die large because some of the tombs there are better than most of the place i've stayed in when I was alive. So there was like a full replica of well, not a full replica like a scale down scale replica of the Taj Mahal and that was just like some drug lord's tomb. Oh costs like a minimum of two grand to be buried there just for like a plot of land so imagine like all these massive houses they got the air conditioning and stuff so the family can visit anyway so when we went there we saw there was a lot of it was just after Day of the Dead there was a lot of like um, weed roaches left there's a lot of um, uh, cigarette butts a lot of empty bottles of tequila lying around so they have a a party it's not just the cartel guys just Mexicans generally it's a thing that they do They've what just, what year
0: did you say this was? This was 2017,
1: 2018.
0: 2017, 2018. So this is really recent. Yeah. And how did you click up with Chapo's people? Uh, so I got a mate there, uh, Miguel.
1: Miguel Angel Vega. He did, Um, I don't know if he's on Channel 4 a while ago, there was a show called The Real Narcos. They had like an ex-SAS guy. It's basically, he, it's the same guy who sorted him out, sorted me out. And he had all these crazy links. Um, so there's this guy. One one of his guys is uh, Bald- Baldomar Casares. He's like a narco corrido singer. So like, I don't know if you've seen that episode of Breaking Bad where it opens up with like the little song. That's like an actual musical genre in Mexico, like folk music about the narcos. So he was one of them. I uh, went to like a little party with him once. Um, he had about twelve beers, and he composed me my own narco corrido song. <laughs> and uh, he, so he, I think he's the one who had the hookup with El Chapo's family because once he wrote a song for El Chapo, and he performed for El Chapo on his birthday, I think once. And um, at this party we're at the the guy the guy's party it was he was a smack dealer he cooks cooked smack so he showed us how to make the heroin from poppy and stuff. And he also s- how how did they do that? I need some acid. So I forgot the name of the acid. We need some kind of acid. I need to heat it over a stove, and kind of um eventually get this sort of cranberry paste, which is morphine, and then you refine that with more acid, and then you eventually get heroin.
0: Wow.
1: But yeah, I noticed he was selling his um his pickup truck as well. So then when it was time for um to go up to the mountains to see our chapter's what? Uh, we couldn't find a 4x4 anywhere. We needed a 4x4 because the roads and the mountains are shit. And they're shit on purpose so that certain parties can't drive up there so easily. Yes. But we couldn't find a 4x4, but we remembered that that smack dealer was uh, selling his pickup truck. So we just went to him, borrowed his pickup truck, <laughs> went to pick up Baldo and his pregnant wife, um, and we're just driving through the mountains in this smack truck for about four hours. With Baldo. Who was Baldo again? Baldo was the narcocritist. Baldo Ma- Baldo okay,
0: okay. I'm
1: driving there for about four hours, then we get to the to the village, and my man Miguel says,
0: um Have you have, did the village know you're coming? Or are you just showing up?
1: Yeah, they knew you were coming, although not this particular address. Um so this guy says uh we he spots a random my my man Miguel he spots a random guy he knows. He says, Hey, can you take us to Don Gh's house? It was like, Yeah, sure, sure. So then he, he uh leads us to this like big hacienda, like proper like stereotypical like narco style mansion. There's like two guys post outside with, like full military camo on, uh like bandoliers across their chest, bulletproof vests, machine guns. They let us through. Um and inside there's this guy um in the house, he's surrounded by like teenage boys, so I guess like maybe his nephews or something, and like his wife's in the corner. He's just eating spaghetti and stuff. He's just got like a silky white shirt on, the shirt's open at the front, he's got like a massive gold ch- a gold cross and he- and he was like, Yes, I'm Don Angel, how can I help you? So it turns out that was the wrong Don Angel. That was El Chapo's brother who had no idea who we were or what we were doing there. Whoa. We we're looking for his cousin who has the same name, Don Angel. Uh, so we we're like, yeah. Uh, sorry
0: about that. I kind of shuffled out of there. I've uh, seen pictures of Chapo's kids with like lions and tigers and gold plated guns and all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. So um, it's just like that in his brother's house.
1: Yeah. Pretty well, not, not, I think his sons are more extravagant, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was proper like stereotypical, like what you imagine like a Mexican cartel mansion to look like it was that. (laughs) And we went back to the uh Did you feel like unsafe? You know what? Um for a second I did. But then I realized um so it took us about four hours like winding through the mountains to get to this
0: village when you go through the mountains because i had operations in mexico yeah like every hour or so there's like a military checkpoint and it's quite a her experience you know they can pull you out your car search your can't do all this. are you experiencing anything like that
1: no not not in, not in this part of mexico okay. i think the cartel paid them all off
0: okay because
1: this was in sinaloa and Sinaloa's, that's the stronghold
0: isn't it yeah sinaloa is yeah. pretty much
1: run by one cartel so they can do what you want but other parts um like I've seen that. I've seen the checkpoints in Colombia. I kept bumping into checkpoints there. Yeah. Um. Which, which is another story. We'll get to that. Okay. But um. No, nah, in Mexico only cartel checkpoints. So every now and then you'd see like some teenage boys and not even checkpoints. Like some teenage boys stood under a tree. They've got walkie talkies. Got little quad bikes. So I, I figured like if they didn't want us to be there, we wouldn't have made it this far. You yes. know what I mean? Like I'm only there with their permission.
0: Yes. And you got your singer and his pregnant wife, did you say, with you?
1: Yeah, we dropped them off there. They didn't go all the way to the village. But I think they're the ones who fixed up the meat as well. So where do you go then from Chapo's brother's house? Where would you go next? Uh, we went to his, uh, his cousin's house, who's also called Don Angel, <laughs> a.k.a. El Indio, you can also call him the Indian. He just looked like a, like a stereotypical like Mexican cowboy, like, big-ass sombrero, like twirly mustache, like snakeskin boots. And yeah, he was he was waiting for us. Um tossed, uh messed around at his house for a bit, went drove over to like a nearby village. Um then when we came back, it was all, it's, it's nighttime by now, and by the way, like it's fucking beautiful out there because like the sky is clear, you're up in the mountains clear, you can see the Milky Way stretched across the sky. Anyway, went back to um to our Ch- to the El Chapo's village, and there I don't know if it was just like for my benefit, uh, or that this is just something they do anyway. But Don Gael, the cousin, he has a sushi stand, and what was happening back at his house when we got back was what I can only describe as a Mexican cartel sushi party. And so there was like a good like a dozen or twenty guys like stood around like big Mexican guys like. AR-15s across their shoulders, AKs, like Glock pistols sticking out of their jeans, just stood around just eating sushi with chopsticks. All this like mariachi, like narco-carilla musics playing (laughs) in the background. (laughs) (laughs) And then like another one of of El Chapo's cousins comes up to me because they're all related in this village. And he like asked me what I think about Albanians, which I thought was a weird question. But it turns out that he's a big fan of Taken. With Liam Neeson, there where his daughter gets kidnapped by Albanians. <laughs> so that was like that became our thing. So I'm there with like this Mexican drug lord, just like discussing Liam Neeson's filmography, eating sushi in the mountains at night, surrounded by all his
0: bodyguards who are all also eating sushi. And what was your response? What did you feel about the Albanians? I
1: don't really have an opinion on them. I mean
0: don't they have a pretty strong mafia the albanians
1: yeah but i only ever met them in prison really okay um they're all right uh was one kind of a couple one kind of crazy one hooked a bit like a hyena the others are okay yeah <laughs> so feel- you're
0: so you've been accepted to this culture of the mountain people which is quite <laughs> wild rough and ready isn't it yeah Up, uh reading the history of it um researching my own books for the war on drugs and um it was quite lawless for a long time. Yeah. And it's still pretty lawless now by the sounds of things.
1: Yeah, it's quite lawless, but like it's like that part of Mexico, like the Sinaloa, like compared to other parts of Mexico, it's quite safe just because there's just one big cartel running the show. But if you go up to, I think, I haven't been there, but from what I've read, like if you go up to like the border towns, especially in the U.S.-Mexican border, that's when shit's kicking off because there's like, Three or four different cartels fighting over the same town. They're hiring like the street
0: gangs, like their proxy muscle or whatever. And it's supposed to be mayhem. Those crossing points are worth tens of billions of dollars a year. Yeah. So the cartels, whoever owns those crossing points, that area, that's the bank right there. So that's where the warfare is. Like Juarez and Texas, and a lot of it comes across Arizona and uh, also into California as well.
1: Yeah, it's probably p- more peaceful in your day though, right?
0: It, um, Yeah, it was more peaceful in my day, which was I had operations in Mexico in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, The Colombians were making a lot of noise in the 80s and early 90s. But then it all kicked off, and Mexico became the murder capital, didn't it? Um, after the turn of the century with yeah. uh it's the new columbia yes yes so you're kicking it with chapo's people and they've just accepted you it sounds like was there any awkward moments
1: i think i was like the the fifth or the only the fifth or sixth like foreign writer had actually come there as well
0: so they must think you've got some balls coming out there <laughs> i just didn't think about
1: it i just kind of like oh cool i it's it's the I like I like I have a weird like assessment of risk, um. So like, I didn't really think about mortal danger too much, but I get fucking terrified when like if a girl sends me an angry WhatsApp, I just don't answer <laughs> the phone. I I don't even look. I'm just scared because like, they can put a hole through my head, but the girls can put a hole through my ego. <laughs> I'm too insecure for that.
0: So while you're with Chapo's people, who did you
1: interview? Uh, I just talked to his cousin and uh his cousin's family. We stayed over there, we spent the night. Um and What did they tell you? Uh they told me a bunch of a uh, bunch of anecdotes. Apparently Chapo's a big practical joker. So, there was one time um before he was a before he was a kingpin, uh some girl died in the village and they wanted to get a uh, they wanted to bury her, but they couldn't didn't have money for a tombstone. So like Chapo sent like a few of his cousins over to um to steal a tombstone from the graveyard from a an, from another village. And the guy is just like he's like quite superstitious. They they all are. It's like it's a very rural area. And he's just digging through the grave and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for this sin. I'm gonna put this back, like, once we've buried her and stuff. And out of nowhere, like these two figures kind of immersed through the mist, like um, big bed sheets and stuff, you know, with eye holes. Going... <laughs> so he'd set that whole thing up. Another time, he fed them all laxative.
0: <laughs> Did the, You hear any stories of the darker side of Chapo? Um. No, I kind of
1: stayed away from that cuz I didn't want to push my luck too much, but I heard I heard some very um not from Chapa but stories about other people in the cartel that were pretty fucked up. Can you give us those? Um so one story for example, we met this woman, this this girl, she's quite young. Um I think she must, must kind of been older than like 21, something like that. And she was like a narco's mistress for a while. But the thing with that, with that is once you're sort of in that, like they'll charm you with like all these presents and these expensive dates, like fly over to Cancun just for the day and stuff. Uh, But once you're in there, then you're trapped and they own you. Basically, you're like property to them. And she was stuck like that for a while. And they can then they can just do whatever they want to. And they they don't even want you to talk to any man, any man who talks to you like they can just slit their throats. So you're just like you just become like an object to them. She eventually got out when um when the guy got killed, I think. uh um, Which guy got killed? The her boy her boyfriend, her narco boyfriend. Um But yeah, it it's it seems like you need to be careful who you date over there.
0: And what methods of drug transportation did you learn about?
1: Uh so I asked the so the big thing was um Still is Trump's uh, Trump's magical wall, um, which sounded retarded to me just from the get-go because they build tunnels. Uh, so I asked the guy, like, what? Uh, we met like another guy in the uh, import-export business, quite a young guy. Uh, I asked him what his main methods were. Uh, he said that sometimes they'll send, they'll bring, like, the get like one of the immigrants is going over there anyway with a backpack but that's like small amounts he mainly brings his stuff over by boat but one thing um i noticed when i was over in el chapo's village so they um up in the mountains we didn't have time to go over there but there's uh, there's some poppy fields nearby and every now and then you see an airplane like a small airplane two man airplane flying over so it's not a very touristy area so i wonder what they're doing there <laughs> And, of course, the roads are shit as well, which makes you think, like, have the maintenance guys
0: not been called on purpose? (laughs) Well, when... If you go back to, like, the Mexican cartel, the times of Caro Quintero and um, Felix Gallardo, and they had that big weed plantation that was busted, the... um,
1: That's why Kiki got killed, right? One of the reasons, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And... The plane that was flying over, the little plane, was the planes that that the Americans had provided to the Mexican government to monitor to see if anything was being grown. (laughs) (laughs) So the plane that's flying over, those guys land and take a payment and then just take off again. That's how it worked. And they were surprised when that plantation was raided because those planes that were coming... I've been the same planes that have brought the important people to the plantation in the first place. And this is what an absolute farce and scam the war on drugs is on the taxpayers.
1: Well, if you can't beat them, join them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And all that money, the Mexicans are are getting to fight the war on drugs. They're buying houses in Spain. And they're laundering it in Panama. And it's it's just a shakedown. All right, so um you you with chapo's cousin then you stay at his house for the night is that what you said yeah yeah watch some 80s action movies (laughs) what what's the preference in action in action movies like bruce willis schwarzenegger yeah he is alone
1: schwarzenegger stallone harrison ford all the greats yeah Mm -hmm. bit of wesley snipes (laughs) (laughs) bit of blade (laughs) because
0: pablo was obsessed with the godfather movie
1: yeah a lot of people a lot
0: of them are yeah
1: a lot of them are um yeah, that's, some, that's something we bonded over, just our love of crime films. Was it? <laughs> and are they big drinkers? Mexico, Yeah, um, but it's mostly beer, it's not tequila, so it doesn't... For me, coming from Russia, it wasn't that, as bad as I thought. But the food there, man, like... Uh, I was not surprised to find that Mexico is, like, the second fattest country in the world. Because, you know, like, tacos, burritos, that's not fast food, that's, like, their normal food if you think about america being the fattest country in the world probably all of the fatties in america are actually mexican <laughs>
0: <laughs> well perhaps you were with wealthy mexicans who maybe have been at that level of eating maybe, but from what yeah. i saw a lot of the mexicans were skinny because they were, there was a lot of poverty in um like in porto penasco and um Hermosillo around there maybe,
1: yeah there's a big difference between like the rich and the poor yes but when i was at chapos at least they just stuffed me like a piñata <laughs> I, I i couldn't i couldn't get like it was hard to get up without having a heart attack
0: <laughs> so how did it finish then in mexico for you did you continue to go to other places after chapos people Uh yeah i
1: just hung around sinaloa for a bit we talked to some talked to us at cop um
0: what did the cor- cop tell corrupt, you? corrupt cop what did the cop tell you
1: um Here's one thing that was interesting, so um he works on the state police's homicide squad, but um if he feel if he thinks it's like a narco murder, he just sometimes they just don't investigate it they just they just get there, they fill in the paperwork because they have to all the formalities, then they just don't bother following any leads because it's just too much trouble what they might find, yeah, that sounds about right and um, I don't even know if that's like really corruption really it's just kind of because they know they're gonna get fucked because like it's not like um, cops and robbers here you know where um, generally we had that what's that guy that guy who went on a rampage that Rambo guy up north. Oh a while but yeah I remember I can't remember his name. I can't remember his name either. He's like a bouncer or something. Yeah. You get guys like him, but that's like, you know, like once every 10 years that happens. Whereas in Mexico, like cops are getting killed every day. Sometimes just to send a message, just because like you arrested one of ours, we're going to shoot up three of yours. There's one time I read about, um, I think the Marines, uh, they killed um, one of El Chapo's associates. No, not a- a- like the Beltran-Livia cartel. Yeah, the like beard. Yeah, the beard, and then um, they held like an open funeral f- for like one of the Marines that got killed in a raid, and uh, the beard's guys just went there and just shot up at the funeral and killed the rest of his family.
0: Yeah, it is a decision, isn't it? If you're going to be a police person in Mexico, to take the silver or the lead.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you can't not be corrupt. It's just like the degree, the degree of corruption. They like. I won't take this many bribes. I'll take this, but you have to take bribes at some point. Like, it's the same in Russia, actually, because uh, they're in Russia and Mexico both. They just paid shit. So, pretty much the only real income they get is from shaking people down or getting payoffs.
0: And again, there's so much money in the drugs business because drugs are illegal. Yeah. That maintains all of this. So, did you interview any other interesting people in Mexico?
1: Let me, let me think. We can edit the thinking bit out. <laughs> no, you're fine. Keep
0: going. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: there's quite a few. Um so Baldo had a few fun stories. Oh, we had um had another guy. He used to be a big time um big time drug smuggler and a hit for the Sinaloa cartel. He's retired now, he doesn't want anything to do with that anymore. And now he's like some kind of amateur chiropractor. He tried to give me a massage. Uh, I was like no mate I'm no, I'm good.
0: I'm How many good. people did he whack, you know?
1: Um I'm
0: not sure but like
1: he's he's not like a full psychopath so he's qu- still quite traumatized about it and he has nightmares. The one funny story he had was um he got into some trouble with the cops cuz he wasn't giving them their cut. Not the, like the federal police, like he paid off the state police, not the federal police. And, and they came to him like hey asshole we want money too. Um So, he he did, like, an operation outside of them. Uh, They ended up, like, stealing a Cessna and flying it over to uh, Baya, California. I think that's where Tijuana is. Uh, They couldn't fly all the way to the States. They just crashed, landed it in the beach. And then, like, they buried the plane in case they need to use it again. (laughs) Another time... um, like early in his career, he was driving up to um to New York with a few kilos of heroin. He came across a border checkpoint and they had sniffer dogs, and so the sniffer dogs somehow didn't find the the smack. Um, so and after that, when he got back to Mexico, he thanked Malverde, who was like the the narco saint. He's like a sort of Mexican. Robin Hood no one's really sure if he actually existed or not but he's like a Mexican Robin Hood kind of getting to the rich uh, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor and uh, he has a shrine there I went to the shrine it's fucking weird man um so there's like loads of like little statues of him uh it's sort of he looks a bit like Mario <laughs> loads of like little Mario statues um then like you got like statues of Virgin Mary you got crosses and stuff like all the usual religious stuff um and you have like pictures like just pictures of like guns and weed all over the walls and like people stick uh they sign their names on banknotes and stick banknotes to the wall there's there's those banknotes from all over the world i saw them from like angola mozambique china so you know it's the he's the patron saint of drug dealers
0: around the world (laughs) so did you go to colombia next yeah, I've been to Colombia a couple of times, actually. A couple of times. Before we get to Colombia, though, people send us the coolest gifts. This is um, Colombian-related. I'm just going to open it on camera and give a shout-out to this person for who sent me this gift. Let me, um, let, let's hope it's not a bomb, because I've been doing all these videos about Epstein and elite chomos. Well no, it didn't explode. There's no wire.
1: It's just a giant pack of Colombian sugar. They're quite famous for their <laughs> sugar down
0: there. Let's see what we got. Oh, ha- handley sorts it? into bricks. This one is for Wildman, right? I won't open that one. That's going to Wildman. Well, it's about the size of a brick of cocaine, isn't it? Let's see what we got here.
1: For the record, just for any law enforcement watching, me and Sean are just actors. We're rehearsing a play that we're doing.
0: Yes, we're not criminals in the slightest. Let's see. Fresh gabar soap. Smell that. <laughs> Rude boy, primal suds. Oh, the Escobar one smells better. Let's have a let's have a whiff of that. Let's see. This is neat. Animal suds. That looks like a carrot cake. Doesn't it? No drugs in it. Well, you say that. So this Primal Suds fresca bar soap, 100% compostable. So shout out to Primal Suds for sending us this. Thanks for the podcast. I listen to them when when making this stuff, making his Escobar soap. <laughs> Peace, love, and earthly Suds. Cheers, Andrew and Jen. Thanks for the gift. Ah, that's really nice. Alright, so you've been to Columbia a few times. Could do with a wash now, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, first time I went backpacking there 2016. Um before I was writing the book, and then I went there over New Year's as well this year. I went to the uh to the rebel camp, the, the far camp. The
0: so There was a civil war in Colombia called the violence. That's when Pablo was just a little kid then and it spilled over into his village and they thought the whole family was going to get killed. They killed a lot of the neighbours. And that civil war was right versus left, but it was really like a land grab and redistribution of wealth. But after that civil war, because you got the two parties... Conservatives and liberals going back 100, 100 plus years in Colombia. After that civil war, people, the poor people, still didn't think that they were getting represented. Yeah. So then, guerrilla groups were formed, including the FARC, including the M19 and various other guerrilla groups. Now, in the early years of the guerrilla groups, their source of income was from kidnapping. Yeah. But then, The cocaine bonanza.
1: They kidnapped one of like Escobar's partner's like daughters or something, right?
0: They kidnapped Carlos Leda, who was a head of the cartel, but he knew karate and he escaped. They shot him (laughs) as he's running off, but he still managed to escape. So then they went for a softer target, which was Martha Martha Ochoa, the Ochoa sisters. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. They snatched her coming out of university. So
1: I think that was M nineteen, right?
0: The M nineteen, yeah, and that's how Pablo established a relationship with the M-19 which led to him financing the Palace of Justice attack so when the cocaine bonanza came along then it became kidnapping and cocaine money and the guerrillas have got this ideology but now they become these big narco traffickers and you're out there you're out there with the FARC which is one of the main groups Yeah. so how did that feel? um
1: it's kind of odd. It's kind of a. It's a really weird uh, tourist attraction. So basically, they've um, a bunch of them have. De- there was a peace, like a ceasefire or a peace treaty. I think it's like it's breaking down now. Gradually, it's probably not safe for me to come back there. But at the time, there was a peace treaty, and um, they had all these demobilization camps where they're supposed to stay, and they've opened it up to outside visitors uh, as a kind of. You won't find the tourist brochures, but you can like ask to stay there and yeah, it was super surreal, man like these rebels have a gift shop <laughs> you can you can buy you can do a little tour of the camp and buy FARC merchandise at the end <laughs> hey, they gotta make a living somehow, you know <laughs> but yeah they had some they had some stories um getting chased by helicopters and stuff, and so they, who was chasing them? Um, it was, uh, it was the Colombian military backed by U.S. advisors. And who was being chased? Who were you interviewing? Uh, just, the the commander of the rebel camp and, like, some of his underlings. But I had to get a translator because his English was just terrible.
0: So what's the craziest stuff they told you?
1: Oh, man, there's so many, I guess, like, just marching for days on end, just, um, hiding in the bushes. They had, um... They could, could they could never eat uh at regular times like they like you and me would have like I don't know breakfast at nine uh everyone in the house has breakfast at nine, then like dinner at five whatever they all had to vary their times and they had they had these sort of makeshift ovens, so uh the chimney from the oven actually goes underground so that the smoke doesn't get picked up anywhere. they call it a Cuban style oven, I'm not sure why. I was the thing. um, they showed me around how they used to live and stuff, and I'm not gonna lie like a bed of leaves is surprisingly comfy, <laughs> like they they know how to do it like I could easily fall asleep there, <laughs> and they all had to have um they all had to have second names as well uh once you once you join the farc you have to either choose or you're given i'm not sure which uh like a code name. It's like the leader of Fark is called Timoshenko, so he's named after a Soviet general in World War II. (laughs) But sometimes for them, like, now it's hard. Some of them have actually forgotten what their real name is because they've just spent 20, 30 years, some of them just in the jungle, and people are just calling them by their code names. It's so the government can't go after, or the paramilitaries can't go after their families and kill their families. Um, where I was in Colombia at the rebel camp like that part of the country it's quite safe relatively for the guerrillas but then a few months ago uh, I think in April I heard that somebody ambushed two, like a young couple from the camp and killed like their seven month old baby Um, so that's part of why the peace treaty is breaking down now because the government hasn't offered any like, they put down their guns, they have filled their side of the bargain, but the government hasn't given them any protection. And I think that's why, like, originally there was, like, a truce in the 80s as well with M19 and with FARC, but that's why it broke down, because, like, the death squads were just killing people right and left, and they just took up
0: arms again. Yeah, even the presidential candidates, because they were becoming political parties, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the presidential candidates were assassinated. Escobar was blamed for that, but it was actually the Castaño brothers who was the paramilitaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were behind it. Yeah. So if the original ideology of these guerrilla groups was Marxist-Leninist, <laughs> yeah. you're out there a Russian guy, Is that does that get you a yeah they, respect <laughs> they loved
1: it man they loved it like the commander he was like well into like the old like communist literature from the 1920s and stuff really they
0: got like little did they have like um the little book of mao and things like that
1: no nah, i didn't have he called he but he called me um nick because my name's my full name's nikolai is so he called me nikolai ostrovsky who was like a famous like propaganda author in the 80s and like wow. i showed him my passport says place of birth Leningrad. He was just like showing all his mates, <laughs> showing around. I was wearing my like uh, my USSR T shirt as well with like the hammer and sickle, just yeah. saying, so you "No, know, I'm
0: one of the boys." <laughs> so they've not completely abandoned their ideology.
1: Yeah, but there's um, I think yeah, it's quite recent. I think like last week or two weeks ago, I heard like that the the main FARC leadership who were in the political party after this peace deal. Now they've taken up arms again, so the war's back on. I think that guy, that commander guy, the main guy I talked to, he's still in the camp, but I'm not sure about some of the others.
0: So have you got any other crazy stories of Colombia then?
1: Yeah, the um the Coca Farm. That was the first time I went um when I went backpacking in twenty sixteen. And it's kind of a really sort of um weird, but it's also an off the grid kind of tour There's a lot of weird tours in colombia. I'm not gonna lie that's that's like this is something you can also do as a tourist uh obviously, for any listeners out there, I would advise against breaking any laws in Colombia or any other country. but in theory, there's a certain small town in the south of Colombia where you can go to and you can basically make your own cocaine. And it's... uh, I was very nervous because I thought at any moment, like, you know, we're like out in the middle of the sticks. um, This army helicopter is going to land. I'm going to try to make a run for it, but I'm going to be no use against trained soldiers. They're going to catch me and then I'm going to have a very awkward phone call with my mom. Mom happened again (laughs) Um, but yeah it's uh, there's a lot of petrol involved and there's a lot of cement involved for some reason I didn't fully understand the chemistry but for some reason if you do it without cement it gets all fucked up but just know next time you're doing cocaine you're snorting
0: cement (laughs) because there's different formulas to manufacture it so did you actually do uh, manufacturing thing yourself?
1: Yeah. Well, I I kind of I, I stayed Allegedly,
0: off,
1: <laughs> I stayed off like the hands-off approach. I let I let the guy do it because he looked yeah. like he knows what he's doing.
0: So your fingerprints weren't on anything.
1: No, no, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm good.
0: And all this alleged stuff. <laughs> uh, did, you, did you allegedly sample the product afterwards?
1: I mean would be rude not to. <laughs> <laughs> but I stayed at, I stayed at that town for a couple more days. And then I, I just randomly, it's like quite a small time, I just randomly bumped into that guy later at a bar just as I was about to leave. And he just kept giving me co- like little vials of cocaine, just like putting like one gram in this plug, one gram in that. <laughs> and I had to fly the next day, so I was like, no, no, el perro, el perro, <laughs> like the dogs, the dogs. And I, I just didn't know, it was an awkward situation, yeah. And in the time where you can make your own coke, how much does it cost to do that? um it allegedly costs about um 40 quid but i'm sure you can bring the price down
0: and the coke's so pure you must make you must get way more return on your investment
1: (laughs) yeah that that didn't help with my paranoia (laughs) (laughs) scariest moment in colombia that that was that that was it yeah i think so Um, yeah yeah, I think Colombia is quite safe for tourists. Like compared to Brazil, Brazil is fuck that people get robbed in Brazil on the regular. You've
0: not got Brazil on your list. Have you been to Brazil? I have been to Brazil.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and was this for your book? You're in Brazil. Yeah. So wh- who did you interview in Brazil?
1: Uh actually, one of my one of my uh, one of my cellmates in jail is a Brazilian guy. Um, I'm not going to say his name on here, but. He, he was fucking hardcore, man. Like, What was he in for? Like, when I met, when I met him, he was doing a 16-year sentence for importing coke, selling coke, selling methadrone and selling ketamine, armed robbery, and possession of firearms. Uh, so, yeah, um, he doesn't play around. But it turns out that before that, back in Brazil, he'd also served another sentence for murder when he was a teenager. This
0: guy's and, he, and he
1: was only, like, 20 years old when I met him, so he'd already spent, like, over a third of his life behind bars. And I met him again, like, a couple of years ago. He's uh he's disabled now. So he went back to Brazil. Uh, he pulled another armed robbery there. And he got into a shootout with the police, but no one actually, like, died, because both him and police were wearing bulletproof vests. But And he showed me a picture of this. He showed me a picture of him shot. Um, The police managed to get him here, like, between the pads. And, like, they severed his spine. So he's got no mobility now underneath.
0: So, But
1: somehow he avoided jail for that. He didn't go to jail. There's a
0: lesson here, anyone watching this. You can just get your spine shot in like that and be... Spine shot off. (laughs) Yeah. And you can end up messed up like that for the rest of your life. Yeah. So what did he tell you?
1: Um, just about prison. Um, Brazilian prisons, hardcore, man. Yeah,
0: I can imagine. What's it like?
1: Like, um, so I've listened to your talk, and U- U.S. prison seems pretty fucked up. I-, it, I think. I think I got off pretty lightly. Like
0: the Arizona jail system, in particular, run yeah. by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, where I spent my first twenty-six months, was the most messed up. Yeah. Oh, did you ever go to that? Um, What's it called? Tent City. Okay, so Alpio ran Tent City.
1: Yeah, that's one of his. Um,
0: but I wasn't in there. That was more minimum security people. Okay. I was in the higher security levels. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember you were saying that, like, the food had maggots in it and stuff. And
0: like Cockroaches, um, dead rats. And was just... I've just been told, has announced that he's re-running now to be re-elected as the boss of the jail again.
1: Didn't Trump pardon him or something? He
0: pardoned him, yeah, for his uh, racial Race profiling. profiling. Yeah.
1: Do um, you know this site, The Onion, uh, like the fake news site? Yeah. So there was one article, Um, Joe Arpaio's family surprises him with captured Hispanic motorists.
0: <laughs> so, all right, back to Brazil. We had this riot recently. Wasn't that in Brazil? Oh, man, they're, they have a riot every other week. And
1: they're like, they're not like uh i think a couple of years ago we had a wave of riots here uh 2016 2017 and that was pretty hardcore by british standards but over them it's a whole different over there they got the severed heads throwing people's heads over the walls and shit um, did you visit any of the prisons i didn't visit any pri- i visited a prison in the philippines but that was a bit under it was the minimum security bit it was basically like for all the guys who are um judge too old to escape so it's like a retirement home with barbed wire
0: <laughs>
1: but um so what's your body in brazil telling you he sent me this video once of like that one of his mates filmed on his phone on the inside it's just the aftermath of a riot and like just two um there are two bodies just fried to a crisp you can barely tell that they were like human beings at one point apparently one of them was a guard and the other one was a snitch it's on uh it was all on a root on the roof of the prison, like sun shining down. It looks like such a nice day, but then you look down and you see all that fucking Kentucky fried chicken lying on the floor.
0: So fried to a crisp. Yeah. So they did they douse li- them with something and set fire to them?
1: Yeah, I think they lynched them, yeah. Wow. And that happens quite regularly. But you can kind of like I'm not condoning prison riots, but you can kind of like the conditions they find themselves in, it's like what, like fifty guys to a cell. You have no privacy. Um, Gangs run everything. And if the gang leader is unhappy, shit's going to kick off. Yeah. And, yeah, it's... Like like all prisons It's drug
0: gangs, isn't it, that run everything?
1: They run everything on the outside as well. In Brazil, there's been a couple of instances where um, I think uh, the main prison gang, the PCC, the first command they call themselves, they act, in t- 2006, they organized like a big terrorist attack on Sao Paulo. They managed to shut that whole city down for a week. They killed like uh, 30 or 40 cops, something like that. Uh, they bombed uh, banks. Uh, like the, Sao Paulo is like Brazil's biggest city, but the streets are completely deserted by the end of the week. No one wanted to come outside. But then the cops retaliated as well, and the cops killed like 100 people in like extrajudicial executions as well. There's no heroes in this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, any more stories of Brazil before we go over to Japan? Brazil um went to
1: a went to a funk party in the favela in Rio. Actually, I felt safer there um than uh than the tourist places. Yeah. Cuz the tourist places like that's where they know there's rich gringos with money and yeah. they get jacked. But in the favela kind of like it's like the gang's law and like they want a good they want like good community relations. You know what I mean? It's like they don't tolerate things like rape and robbery and stuff. Like people do that like get shot in the knees. Obviously uh having a bunch of teenagers with assault rifles isn't the best uh way of maintaining law and order but um i did feel safer in the favela at least in rio other cities like or other favelas like in the less touristy parts of rio i'm not so sure but
0: Rossinia at least it's pretty safe so what made you then go to japan did you have a connection out there
1: no nah, japan i just kind of went out there blind to see what happened but i knew there was um there was a festival there called the sanja matsuri i'm not sure if i'm sorry guys if i'm Fucking up the pronunciation. I think it's called Sanja Matsuri, Um, which is like the biggest spring festival, traditional Shinto spring festival in Japan. And that's one of the few times where the Japanese Yakuza, like the mafia, they can come out and you can actually see them in public because, you know, they're all covered in the, they got the full body tattoos. They got like the dragons and like demons and stuff. So even if they're naked, it looks like they're wearing clothes because just like everything from neck down is tattooed. That's it one of the few times you can see them in public because you're usually not allowed to flash their tattoos because there's some law in Japan now against like gangster intimidation. So it could count as that. But at these traditional festivals they all come out in force. And like, yeah, they're pretty open about who they are. It's not like the mafia, they're not like secretive, like the the legitimate businessman social club. It's like they yeah, like we're the Yakuza, this is what we do. I actually, asked them for some pictures, and they're like, yeah, they just dropped their shirts immediately so I could take pics. It was pretty surreal, man. And what do they do? Um, basically, anything illegal and most things legal. Uh, so they had a, they had quite a big stake in the carnivals. They run a lot of the... Um, in, at the at the, the San Jimenez, they run a lot of the stalls, just the legit stalls, so just food and stuff. Um, then they run kind of like a lot of the semi... Legal businesses like porn, where it's not illegal, but it's, you're getting some seedy whiffs from it, and then they all run the um, the like the prostitution rackets and the drugs. Which in Japan, it's mainly crystal meth. And really? from what I've read in Japan, it's the only country where more people do crystal
0: meth than smoke weed. Really, I had no idea. So meth is bigger than weed in yeah. Japan. I mean, not a lot of people do drugs in
1: Japan because it's like it's not really in their culture. But of the people who do do drugs, like meth is more popular there.
0: When I was in prison, a woman wrote to me and she said her brother was in prison in Japan. And you got to sit there quietly all day. And when they search you, they have a glass rod that they stick up your asshole to see if there's anything in your anal cavity. Yeah. I
1: heard I heard that Japan prison Japan's very strict.
0: You're not allowed to speak, you just sat there.
1: That's insane. Yeah. You're going mad, man. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's like some Victorian shit. These uh Yakuza guys then, did you actually other than taking pictures, did you actually interview any of them?
1: I did interview one, but not in Japan as when I was in the Philippines. I um I met one in a drug rehab clinic I went to.
0: And what did he tell you?
1: He was uh he was a fucking killer as well. Um, I didn't have any way to like properly verify his story, and like from what I, my experience of prison, a lot of people chat shit. But from like the little details, um, like the the Iranian drug dealers, like it's a lot of it sounded very poor. And from, he had a big dragon tattoo on his arm as well, so it sounded plausible. Um, but yeah, he had a really fucked up childhood. Uh, Grew up in the Philippines. His dad beat him up and made him eat his own vomit. And uh, so, yeah, it's not really surprising. He had some anger issues when he grew up. So when he grew up, like he found um, his family moved to Japan or his mom moved to Japan, found people who can exploit that anger. So like, I think in a different life, like maybe he could have been like um, a serial killer or something, because, you know, like they all have these fucked up backgrounds as well but what like organized crime and the mafia does it exploits that kind of violence but like commercializes it you know what i mean like they make a profit out of it so he became like um a yakuza enforcer uh you don't have to be japanese to be in the yakuza because a lot of them are chinese korean less like because in every country like it's always minorities getting this shit end of the stick right so in japan like chinese immigrants koreans they're in the yakuza filipinos now and he was telling me this story how like his crew, they robbed, a, he had like a meth import operation from the Philippines. But he's also robbing other drug dealers in, uh, in Japan, like some Iranian drug dealers. And he was telling me, and like, he was like showing me with his hands and stuff because his English wasn't that good. How he's like chopping up and getting rid of the bodies. And like he threw these body parts into uh, Tokyo Bay and they were illegal immigrants, so, like, no one's gonna know if they ever went missing or not. So, even though Japan, it's a very very safe country, it's a very kind of by-the-books or prim and proper country, there is still, like, the drug underworld is still there, it's everywhere, man.
0: Who, out of all these countries and people you met, would you say was the most dangerous person?
1: Oh, you know, um, it's hard to say, but one guy, I got a very strong, no vibe about was, um, so I'm doing a, a Dutch edition of my book as well with a special chapter on like, uh, the drug underworld in Amsterdam, we're calling it Gangsterdam. I met another guy there who was also called Nico. He was Dutch, but he actually looked more Russian than me. Cause like, you know, we Russians have quite round faces. His face is like a perfect sphere. But he was a fucking psycho, man. Like, um, he claims he's retired, but then, like, he had some encrypted chat on his phone. He had, like, pictures of, like, undercover cops being beaten up and stuff that his mates have been sending him. Um, yeah, I just got a very kind of no-nonsense fight. And, like, the guy um, who my connection was to him, uh, another guy in Amsterdam, he, like, he, like warned me um just in case you're thinking of ever doing business with this guy, don't like he's my mate, so he's cool with me, but like he wouldn't think about even ripping off the like the Mexicans for like a hundred keys or whatever um and yeah, that was in Holland that's a country you didn't think about in terms of like nasty shit but he was a he definitely registered on my psycher more than the um more than the, the Yakuza guy, I just kind of felt sorry for him. I don't know, maybe the, maybe Dutch Nico had a fucked up childhood too. I don't know, I didn't go that deep with him. But he was the one who unnerved me the most, I think.
0: And you said you also were moved by meeting Ray Lakeman, a man who lost both his sons in one night.
1: Yeah, um, so that was, that was quite interesting for him because like, I'm a... I'm a convicted uh, drug felon, um, so I thought I thought that like one of the easy criticisms of my book you could have if you're coming from like uh, like a sort of conservative like established standpoint is like, oh yeah look at this fucking drug dealer like uh, saying oh yeah we should legalize everything obviously he's gonna say that so uh, I thought it'd be interesting for me to meet someone who's actually suffered because of drugs. And um, he actually lost both his sons to ecstasy in one night. So, like, obviously, just e- even losing one son, no parent should have to, one child, no parent should have to go through that.
0: Was that fake ecstasy then? Because it's so um, unusual for someone to die from ecstasy.
1: Um, apparently, the autopsy showed they had, like, six times the lethal dose. Like, they had no idea how pure it was going to be.
0: Okay. So it was a an, an overdose on extremely pure ecstasy. Yeah, Kill both of them at, at the same time. Yeah,
1: like they didn't. Know. Wow,
0: that is um, Jesus Christ. So how did it feel me- meeting him? I mean, bloody hell.
1: Yeah, I was a bit. I was a bit nervous and like you'd think that he's this kind of guy who'd uh, who'd hate my guts. Yeah, but actually, we're on the we're on the same team. It turns out. So um, his reasoning, like he's told like his the story, yeah, to like kids and stuff. But he knows that like it's not gonna stop kids from doing drugs because if they want to, they are. You know? And like they're just gonna think that oh those two were just unlucky and they were unlucky because like you said, it's like very rare to die from ecstasy unless it's been tainted somehow. Um but his logic was like uh that drugs like ecstasy, they're not Uh, illegal because they're dangerous, they're dangerous because they're illegal. I
0: agree 100%. So, there's
1: it doesn't like come with a label, you know, like may contain nuts or whatever. Like, unless you have like a testing kit, no, and most people don't, apart from like very scrupulous dealers and very scrupulous customers. Um, so a lot of people, like I didn't, so like a lot of times, like I didn't fully know what I was selling. Like, maybe maybe it's XC, but maybe it's just speed. Uh, with like a dash of ecstasy. And that's basically how people die. It's like um, they had the same problem in uh, in Prohibition era America with the moonshine. So obviously like some moonshine, you know, if the guy knows how to make it, it's top notch. But then you also just have like some hillbilly just like brewing in his bathtub, just doing the same like prison hooch style. And, you know, that's like when you read stories like people going blind or whatever, that's because of that. So there's no control over it. So in a way, you know, like, we got along quite well.
0: I was put on a TV show once with a woman whose daughter had died from ecstasy. Mm. And I think that the producers wanted us to go at each other. Mm. Or for her, I obviously, I couldn't have got to go at her. But for her to attack me mm. and perhaps blame me for being a dealer. And, you know, if she'd have done that, I would have just been completely silent and i would have known what to have said to this poor lady because mm. what happens is an absolute tragedy to her daughter um but she actually came up to me at the end of the show and gave me a big hug and she said if drugs were legal her daughter would never have died because her daughter died i think it was on a know i think she took 10 or 20 times the amount so if 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 it was legal and you knew exactly how pure and you knew exactly what one dose was, yeah. these people wouldn't be dying. And also, when you see multiple people die at a rave, mm. you know that's not real ecstasy, because what what's happened here is extremely rare.
1: It's like PMA or something like yeah,
0: that. Yeah, they put something in it, the gangsters, because they don't care about the welfare of, of the users, they just want to make their profits. So they've put this substance in it that's going to cause these deaths. And again, that is a function of the illegality. So... You're never, ever going to stop people from taking drugs. Kids should have more education and less incarceration, I believe. Mm-hmm. Adults should be able to do whatever they want to their bodies. But they should be able to do it in a pure way, yeah. a regulated way. You know, what gives the right of people who drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes and take prescription pills, what gives them the right to put adult drug users in prison of other of drugs that they're not in drugs that they're taking? <laughs> it's just moral relativism
1: i had a i had a thought a while ago i think like if more people did ecstasy than drank probably clubbing would be a lot more fun because like think about it people get drunk they start fights no one starts a fight on
0: ecstasy you got three young people a week in this country dying from binge drinking alone yeah um it, it's a fraction die from t- from taking ecstasy and then ex- uh alcohol is the number one drug in murder and violence Mm. so then you got all people getting murdered and maimed and raped it's the number one drug in sexual assault and date rape then you got all that associated with it as well yeah yeah. but those same people who are drinking alcohol are preaching at people who take ecstasy
1: yeah 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 it's messed up it is it's
0: double standard
1: the one thing I would say, though, is with ecstasy, you get a lot of annoying and repetitive conversations.
0: <laughs> <laughs> People want to tell you their life story and enter your spirit and soul. So last couple of things here you've got written down on the list is CIA crack connection. What do you know about that?
1: Oh, well, yeah, we talked about that earlier with... Um, with. Uh, yeah, we we talked there the the cocaine import agency and the contras in the eighties. Um, so one of my friends, um, he's friends with uh, Freeway Rick Ross.
0: Yeah, I've interviewed him for my upcoming book. We are being lied to: the war on drugs.
1: Yeah, so so did I. It was, but it was hard to get a hold of him, man, because I think at the time when I was trying to interview him, he had like a new book coming out. So he was trying to do his own book tour, trying to schedule me somewhere in between his many other interviews. But I'm glad I'm glad that we got through in the end though. because um, Yeah, he's a interesting guy. Uh, I think it was fucked up that he couldn't read for a while. Like maybe if he'd gone to a better school or something, like if he grew up in a different neighborhood, he could have been like just a CEO of a major
0: company, you know. So he became, just for people who don't know Freeway Rick Ross grew up in poverty and became the biggest crack cocaine dealer on the West Coast. He was getting endless supply from Danilo Blandon? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, the country guy. So he didn't know where the coat was coming from properly. Gets a life sentence. He's illiterate. Gary Webb comes to visit him in prison, the journalist who wrote Dark Alliance. Gives him a heads up. But the coke he was buying is from the CIA who are financing this war in Nicaragua. Um, he then taught himself to read in prison. And he, through the court process, managed to get himself out, didn't he? Yeah,
1: yeah. Cause he had a life sentence. But it was like one of those three strikes and you're out thing they have in America. But he found out that his previous two offensive counters won. So he's he still on two strikes.
0: Yes, that was what got him out. Yeah. So, the U.S. federal government, the CIA, is facilitating the importation of cocaine into America to Freeway Ricky Ross. At the same time as the U.S. federal government is waging a war on drugs and arresting all the users of the same drugs they're bringing into the country.
1: (laughs) They've been doing that for a while, though. um, If you go back to, like, all the way to, like, the World War II, like, on the... Not the C- I don't think the CIA was around in World War II, but like the Navy, maybe. They worked with the the mafia to help control the New York Docklands.
0: They had the OSSI back then, didn't that's they? That's it, that's the precursors it. Precursors to the CIA. Yes,
1: yeah, so they worked with like Lucky Luciano and all them. Yeah. And obviously, at the same time, Lucky Luciano is running this massive smack pipeline from Europe to America. And then they did it again in uh, Vietnam. They had like all these local like tribal warlords who are growing the opium. There's a movie about Air America, I think, with Mel Gibson. It wasn't a great movie, but I
0: think it's a true story. Air America, Southwest, what was it, Southern Air Transport. They were all the different airlines that the CIA were using, weren't they? Yeah. The Bush Clinton family was heavily involved in money that that financed Clinton's uh, rise to becoming the president, I believe. And even, I think, Epstein uh, is is in that mix. So
1: That wouldn't surprise me.
0: Yeah, that's, that's I think that's where his money came from. Um, coke, drugs, and weapons, the, the old Barry Seal flights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Coke coming in, weapons going out. And then you got, we went into Afghanistan to stop the opium, and we got, what, a 1,000% increase in opium
1: production. Yeah, like, they're saying that the Taliban's doing it, but really, it's just, like, <laughs> it's just all the guys on the CIA's payroll. <laughs>
0: And do you think that um, the people in America now are starting to believe this, do you think these people are ever going to get out of prison who who are doing these life sentences for crack cocaine in the 80s, black people in particular, that were taking the same cocaine that the CIA were brought in? Yeah. Do you think that they'll ever get out of prison, these guys?
1: Man, you know
0: because it's becoming more of like a political issue they're letting um, some of the weed heads out now
1: yeah yeah Um, they're letting some of the crack guys out as well I'm not sure how far it goes back but I've heard some of it
0: Um, All, anyone who's in prison for weed possession in America yeah. should be immediately released I believe yeah that is pathetic I'd go, I'd
1: go, I'd go further I think that when the legal weed around they should get they should be the first in the line to get like licenses for distribution (laughs) you know like because you're not going to give them that time back but yeah give them a job (laughs) yeah like it's not fair that like if you're like some like poor black kid in the hood you got caught with like a couple of ounces and then like you have to sit out on this great green rush yeah while these big corporations are moving in
0: so have you interviewed any british gangsters
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so I called up some of my old mates from back in the day in um, in London and in uh, Nottingham. <coughs> London, the the Nottingham guy. Sorry, he's he's paranoid as fuck. He has um he has a he's mainly a weed dealer. He's quite high up in the weed game, but one time he dabbled in coke. Uh, went a bit wrong. Uh, he ended up in some guy's living room. And uh three of them are holding they're holding like holding him down to the wall against the wall with a gun to his head. And he only got out of it because that guy's mum came in and started shouting, Oh, what's all this commotion? That's when he fucking just legged it. <laughs> but yeah, he's uh un- understandably paranoid as fuck now. So he's got uh when I went to see him again he had uh, he had a weapon in every room. So he had like a baseball bat hidden behind the sofa. Sounds like, like my mate Wildman. <laughs> <laughs> he had a samurai sword in the kitchen, I believe. I think he had some nunchucks somewhere. <laughs> Bruce Lee style. Can <laughs> go Enter the Dragon on them.
0: Any uh, higher profile ex-gangsters that have got books out or anything like that? Have you interviewed any people like that? Like Dave Courtney?
1: Um, People like that, let me think. Apart from Rick Ross, I think Rick Ross was the main one. Um... I try to stay away from, like, more famous people because, like, I don't really want to go on their turf too much. I figure I'd get a better story out of people who who maybe aren't as famous.
0: But, um, yeah, Rick Ross was the big one. And did Rick Ross tell you anything that we need to know about uh, that we've not discussed?
1: Rick Ross um, told me about the prison dynamics in jail. uh, Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Because like as as you probably know, it's very racialized. All in, um, racial in American prisons. He didn't have any trouble off the um the Aryan Brotherhood, like the main white gang, himself. But there was like a couple of times, like because like he tried to chill with everyone. Um, but there are a couple of times like some white guys um tried to be mates with him and stuff, and just the Aryans wouldn't let them. And there was one guy called uh Todd McCormick, I think think that was his name and like they said he couldn't be mates with rick ross and then like one time when rick wasn't around they just took him to a cell and they beat him with um locks and socks so that was pretty fucked up and i have another mate um who's also in the book seth ferranti i think you might have met him or talked to him sometimes he does some stuff for vice uh he was like a few he was on the u.s marshals top 15 most wanted fugitives for a while but he was just like a teenage like weed dealer in way over his head tried to fake his own death and then this was the uh the clinton era when he got caught so this is like the 90s where they're coming down hard on this sort of thing he ended up getting 25 years just for like weed and lsd not even like crack just weed and lsd um so that was fucked up, and he told me a lot about like the racial dynamics there as well. Um, so there was he was like uh, mates with this this like wild country boy. I forgot his name, uh, Johnny Deathrow. Johnny Deathrow. And <laughs> one time there were some uh, some black guys that just come on the wing. And they're obviously quite new, and then they don't like know much about the racial politics of the unit, and they're trying to watch uh, TV in the white room, so him and um him and Johnny Deathrow went over there and like Seth was like trying to be polite as like guys like if you guys want to watch TV there's the black room just across the hall but then like um uh the black guys kind of didn't take it very well I think that one of them said something like fuck you cracker and then Johnny Deathrow cocked one of them on the nose like blood started pouring so Seth like quickly had to drag away this fucking crazy ass country boy back to his cell and then like he had to talk to the black shot core on the wing to make sure like a full-blown like race ride didn't kick off in the prison but it's nuts there man like we don't really have that in the in the UK like we have gangs but all like all the gangs I saw in um in UK prison they're all just basically street gangs so it's like oh you're from Brixton I'm from Peckham fuck you but it wasn't like racially divided like it is in the States. It's postcodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in London. I don't know how it is like in other parts of the UK, but in London it was mainly like postcode gangs. So what are you gonna do next? Well, um get some strippers, some beer and party like it's nineteen sixty nine. Um I've got an idea for uh for another book about prison escapes.
0: Um, Oh, you need to speak to some of our guests. Yeah, Johnny Boy Steele. Bloody hell! Is that the bank robber guy? No, Johnny Boy Steele. Um, oh, the Thai guy. No, Johnny Boy Steele is Glasgow, Glasgow. Okay, he's like more old school. Like the other gangsters look up to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he escaped so many times. He he got his brother out. His brother was framed for the Ice Cream War murders. Oh, shit. I... And they got him out, and they superglued him to Buckingham Palace. The Queen's looking out the window at him. Johnny Boy Steele not no only way. escaped his brother, I think multiple times, he put him back in. He put him back in.
1: That's wild, man. Definitely hook yeah.
0: me up. Yeah. Speak to him. What other escape people... Oh, we any other prison escapers? Oh, David, David Macmillan?
1: Yeah, the escape Thai guy.
0: The only Westerner to escape from death row in Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking you, about if, that. If you God. guys out there watching this video are not familiar with these stories, 40-something plus true crime podcast now. Got a whole playlist. Go down the playlist. Go back and watch these fascinating stories. David Macmillan, man, the way he describes escaping out of this Thai death row. He's written a book on it called Escape. Bloody hell, honestly. We were like... Oh, on the edge of our seats, yeah. There's um there's
1: one guy I wrote to, um I'm hoping I haven't I haven't like asked him if he if he's gonna go in yet or not, but like the this French guy called Redwan Fayed. Faid. Where's he based now? He's back in prison in France. Uh, his trial's coming up in a couple of weeks. But he escaped from prison twice. I think the first time he had some explosives smuggled in, he was just blasting his way through the doors. Throwing explosives wow. in the doors and then last year he escaped again on helicopter <laughs> Like uh, he was on a visit with his brother and suddenly this commando team swoops down into the yard wow. blows their way through the doors They all have assault rifles Snatch oh, him up shoot. and he runs away, but then they caught him again now He's I think he's gonna probably going away for a long time, Whoa. but we're pen pals now wow. <laughs> Sounds pretty wild he's very into his um into his gangster movies as well yeah uh i think at one point one one bank robbery he did him his crew all wearing um the ex-president's masks you know i can point break <laughs>
0: point break yeah i remember that one yeah yes yeah, so he'd be quite interesting to have so the next book's going to be about prison escapes
1: how to break out of jail coming yeah. soon <laughs> a guide <laughs>
0: I highly recommend your book, and I'm gonna am le- gonna leave a, uh, a five star review on Amazon. Dope world. Like I said at the very beginning of this podcast, all of the links are in the description box below this video. If, you, if this is available worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audio book, I believe. If you want to go over to Nico's socials description box we got all the links. If you want to subscribe to the channel, help support the True Crime Podcast, that logo now is in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. There's a logo now. You can just click on it and subscribe to the channel. If you've got any questions for Nico, please put them in the comments section below this video. I'm sure that um, Nico will be reading your feedback. Slash and- abuse. <laughs> and comments um other links below we've got donation links and we've got um all my socials as well so man i love that cover it's so bright and yellow yeah thanks for coming on man really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me man you're welcome man yeah cheers brother good luck with what you're doing in a bit in a bit yeah, 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 yeah 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 thanks